growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. Everybody, welcome to another episode of the How We Solve show. And today I have my friend Marcus Kauke on, on the show. And as always, Chili, our partnership manager over at L2 Plus. Thanks for being here, guys. And today we'll chat with Marcus about how to make channel sales work. Marcus is a fraction CRO and the author of the book, Making Channel Sales Work, and he does a lot of other cool stuff. So Marcus, maybe you just give a quick overview. Happy to be here. David, Chili, thank you for having me. So Marcus Kauke, I'm a fractional CRO of my own business called Laughs Last Limited, which comes from the proverb, he who laughs last, laughs longest. And I work with tech scale-ups in the 10 to 50 million revenue range and help them achieve sustainable, profitable hypergrowth so that they don't have to sell their soul to vultures and speculators dressed up as investors. They can grow organically and profitably with customers for life and highly engaged employees across their entire revenue operation. So that's marketing, sales, customer success, and account growth, and all related functions, including operations and professional services. And I advise the board on how to hire, compensate, measure, track, train, develop their revenue operations. And basically, I get paid to play. Yeah, it's your passion. We just talked about this before. You had never worked a single hour in the last 17 years because you can't wait to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, it's so much fun. I mean, I can't believe that I get paid to do this stuff. I'm not complaining, by the way, but it's really interesting, important work. It creates employment. It gives people the freedom to make choices, helps build amazing businesses. And my passion is strategic alliances, hence the reason why we're here tonight. Let's dive right into it in terms of strategic lines or making channel sales work. If you could break it down, what are the steps to have a successful channel sales or strategic alliances or partner program in your business? Right. The first thing you have to do is look in the mirror. The single biggest reason why partner programs and alliances do not work is you are a shit partner. Okay. So are you self-centered or are you partner-centered? If you're not partner-centered, then why on God's earth would they bother to partner with you? Your partners are in business for their reasons, not your reasons. They don't care about your latest product. They don't care about your need to feed your investors' greed. What they care about is how they can be successful. So if you're not asking what's in it for our partners, what are we going to do to make sure that they want to sell on our behalf? How are we going to make them wildly successful? then you've got no business setting up a partner program. So that's the starting point. <laughs> Don't be a shit partner, be partner-centric and provide value to your partner. Absolutely. And again, before you engage with partners, make sure that you've got a process to help them be successful. Understand the partner's end customer. Do you bring some value that they cannot currently offer their customers? Because at the end of the day, their customers rent outcomes from them. Customers do not buy your product or service forever. They only rent the outcome. Now, let me give you an example. I might love to drive around in my overpriced sports car, 
let's pretend I've got an Aston Martin DB9. And I love it. My adoption rate is through the roof. My consumption is through the roof. If I've got to go and buy an egg, I will drive 200 meters up the road to the shop because I love the sound when I press the ignition button. And I love the fact that I get to drive this toy. Now, I'm satisfied. I'm delighted with this. But then my elderly parents get sick and my outcomes have changed. I now have to have something because a two-door sports car that's five inches off the ground with people who are largely bedridden or in wheelchairs, not very practical. So whilst I might be incredibly happy and satisfied, my outcomes have changed. So now I need an ugly old MPV with a wheelchair ramp and swivel chairs so that I can get them into it and a hoist. So I may not be happy, but my outcome is now being satisfied. And if we don't understand our end customer and the outcomes that they want and the customer's journey, then we're in trouble. So let me illustrate what I mean by the customer journey and how most of you are getting it wrong. If you've got kids, you'll understand the misery that is a trip to McDonald's. Now, as far as the McDonald's employees are concerned, the customer journey begins when I drive up to the tannoy and I place my order, then I drive to the next window, pay my money, and then I drive to the next window and I pick up my toxic food. Now, the customer journey for me begins when my horrible little children scream and fight and say, I'm hungry, can we go to McDonald's? Okay, eventually I cave in because I'm weak. And then I pile them into the car. Meanwhile, World War Three is breaking out on the back seat. They're punching and spitting at each other. And then every couple of minutes I get, are we there yet? And we get, how long? Okay, then we eventually queue up and there are eight cars in front of us. And the volume in the car has just risen to a crescendo. I'm trying to take their order. Meanwhile, they're punching and fighting each other. We get to the squawk box and they change their fucking mind. I then have to put the order through again on bad sound quality with someone who probably doesn't speak English as their first language. And I'm pretty unsure whether or not the order was right. But by this time, I've just thought, bugger that. So I drive around, pay my money. That's the best bit of the entire journey for me. I just tap the card and it works. Fuck, great. Okay, so then I pick up my food. Now I've got 12 cars behind me and I'm thinking, should I check? But I've got a vegetarian daughter as well. So then we drive over and we have to wait for another 10 minutes while they'd make her food specially. And then I look inside and they've got it wrong. So now I have to walk up to the window and get the correct order. Now we eventually get the food. Then I drive home and I give it to them just to shut them up. But now I've got milkshake going everywhere. I've got one of them with a chip up their nose and I've got my upholstery being ruined and one of them pukes. And then I have to clean that up and I have to get rid of the packaging. That's my journey. But as far as the Mackie D's people are concerned, turn up the window, pay my money, pick up the food. Okay. So you need to really think hard before you set up your partner program. Who is my customer? What are the outcomes they're trying to achieve? Who is my partner? What are the outcomes they are trying to achieve? What's the journey each of them go through? And where do I fit in helping them be successful? And my job as a channel partner or as a channel manager, is to make my partners wildly successful. Now, the next way most people bugger this up is they go for recruiting a land army, and anyone who'll sign up, they sign up. Whereas, in fact, what they should be doing is recruiting special forces partners. 
and work closely with them. I have a friend who in 14 years grew a $3 billion a year business with 12 partners. That's very impressive. I know you speak a little bit about focusing your marketing budget, perhaps on promoting your partners. Was that part of the strategy in this case? They co-marketed and they co-sold. So again, there are some really good pointers. If you are setting up a channel partnership, then before you put a ring on their finger, make sure that you're compatible. So first of all, look in the mirror and make sure your management and your leadership are on side and supportive. Because if you've got an idiot for a CFO, what he'll do is he'll withhold commissions or he'll fiddle with the comp plan or he'll say, well, why the hell are we spending all this money training them when they're going to sell our competitors stuff? So you've got to make sure. And J.D. Delosier from 8x8, a condition of him taking on the channel chief role was that his CEO went on a road trip with him to meet the partners for a month. And he would not take on the job until that had happened. So you've got to have executive support. And you go through a courtship ritual, and there are 14 really important questions you need to answer before you say, I do, and you put a ring on each other's finger. Can you pin a logo to their office door? Or are they doing this out of their airing cupboard or their back bedroom? Is somebody, apart from their chief executive, their top salesperson? Because chances are, if it's only the CEO, they're very technical. And you can have good technical partners, but don't expect any business from them. You will be feeding them. Ask them how they get business. And the standard response is, oh, we get them from our customers, from word of mouth and referral. That's great if you have a systematic approach that you can forecast six to nine months ahead. So if you have a systematic referral marketing system that delivers consistent, predictable pipeline, I can live with that. But if all of your referrals are a nice surprise that slap you from left field across the head, that's not a system. So how do they go to market? What kind of reputation do they have? Go out and poll their clients, find out who their customers are and establish, are they any damn good? Because if they're not, you're going to be in trouble because they are your shop window and they're the people representing your brand. And when things go wrong, they'll say, we used up, we didn't bloody work. Well, actually, it wasn't up, coach. It was your partner. So make sure that they're the right people. Is their culture more technical than sales? You've really got to establish and understand what you're getting into. Are your business cultures compatible and complementary? If they're not, you want to find out before you get into bed together, because you're just going to end up in destructive conflict very, very quickly. And that means that you need to have peer-to-peer engagement. Your executive team needs to speak to their executive team and your channel manager has to have access to their executives with an agreement that they can escalate things if they find themselves stuck in a bottleneck. A really good indicator, I was speaking to one of my strategic alliance partners today and they've got a partner over in Spain and I asked this question, how easy were they to deal with from the outset? Because I knew from what they were saying that they weren't easy and they were a pain in the neck from day one. Then my next question was, So I'm guessing they're letting you speak to their customers. We have no idea who their customers are. Well, that tells you that you haven't earned their trust. So if they're not willing to let you speak to their customers, I do have a workaround whilst you earn their trust. And what you do is you have them give each customer a reference number, make it something slightly awkward to remember. So every time they have to look it up. So it could be 
RX forward slash 9371. Now, every time they refer to that, after a while, they'll just get pissed off and say, forget it, it's Halford's. <laughs> but they'll only do that when they trust you. But you can accelerate that process by allowing them to protect their customers because they've all been burned by vendors who really pissed off their customers, who they've spent a lifetime cultivating. Another really important indicator is do their salespeople ask good questions in the due diligence stage and in the onboarding stage? Because if they're asking bland, vanilla, instantly forgettable questions, that's what they're going to do when they go out and sell on your behalf. Do they welcome your onboarding process? And part of being a great partner is having a 120-day onboarding process. New hires put the company, the job, and the boss on probation for four months after they're hired. And a trimester gives you enough time to train them to be functional and also to get the second deal over the line. In terms of the onboarding process, you onboard a partner for 120 days? The way I like to do this is I have a letter of intent. I go into a territory and I pick five or six prospective partners. I interview them. I establish whether or not the chemistry is right, whether our target markets are compatible, whether we're going to bring value. And then I select one and I offer them a letter of intent. And the letter of intent says, over the next 60 days, we intend for you to be our exclusive partner in this region or in this vertical. On condition that you give me 25 or 50% of your best salesperson's time, they set up X number of meetings with this type of prospect. We have X number of first meetings and X number of second meetings. And your pre-sales people go on this training. Okay. And if you meet all of those conditions, then we'll give you exclusivity for 12 months. And that way I can get them on board before the bloody lawyers ruin everything. Don't let American lawyers get anywhere near your partner contracts. Because if you're trying to do this in, I don't know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, I can guarantee you're just wasting paper. If you're trying to build your channel, don't let bureaucracy get in the way. Make sure there is an onboarding training program where you get to train their salespeople as if they are your own. Establish a cadence of accountability, pipeline reviews. You co-prospect, you co-market, you go to customers together. And the way I've built my partner training onboarding process is 120-day training. We create assets, we create tools, we create systems. There's regular role play. There's mandated pre-call planning, a written pre-call plan. Then mandated rehearsal, because if they're going to invest their time, their money, their resource... I want to make sure that we have the highest probability of advancing or disqualifying quickly. So some statistics that will make you wince. On average, in the pandemic, and this is from 40 million recorded cold calls, on average, it takes 33 dial attempts to get one effective, unless you're calling a senior executive in IT, in which case it's one in 46. That's a hell of a lot of effort wasted. On average, one in 14 effectives converts into a first meeting. And on average, only one in eight first meetings results in a second meeting actually advancing. So it takes all that effort to get in front of 
your one prospect and only one in eight of those does the salesperson deliver enough value to the end customer to advance it. The conversion rate, when you calculate that out, is dial to advancement is 0.03%. Yeah. So this is an act of idiocy. If you ran your finance department in the same slipshod, half-assed manner that you run your marketing and sales operation, you'd be out of business or probably in jail before the end of the quarter. That's okay, apparently. Digital marketing, 1.91% of Google adverts get one click or more. So that means 98.19% get zero clicks. Now, isn't that just fantastically stupid? And you look at the brute force of email marketing. So Chili, let me ask you this. How many email subscriptions have you willingly subscribed to? I'd say about five to 10. Five to 10. And of those five to 10, how many do you actually look forward to receiving? Probably maybe one, if that. And of the one, if that, when that email comes through, how often does it go into the category, that looks interesting, must look at that later, never do? Yeah, 95, 100% of the time. Right, okay. So I've only met one person who's had a different answer to that. And I've interviewed probably 500 people with that question. So most email marketing is just noise. Most digital advertising is just noise. Most prospecting by phone is just noise. So your job as their partner is to help them optimize that process as efficiently as possible. And to make sure that that accountability, the training, the ongoing coaching, the reinforcement is delivering value to help them improve those odds so that the activity is replaced by meaningful action that advances the sale. And it's actually very possible to do that. I've created partnerships and alliances with organizations that help us to eliminate 95 to 98% of all the wasted dial time. I have partners now who can arbitrage the dial. So instead of speaking to one prospect every two to three hours, you speak to five to six highly motivated prospects who are in your target market, are ready to have a sales conversation every hour. How do you do this? They work with their existing customers. That's the idea. They well, always kind of like find partners where they can sell into their existing customer base. Well, that's your starting point. That's the quickest route. Sell to the people they already sell to. If you're bringing something similar but different that enhances their customer's business, then why would you not go and sell to those people first? They already know, like, and trust them. They're already on their purchase ledger or on their finance system. They've already agreed to their terms. So now it's a matter of creating those introductions and generating revenue for them because your partners are coin-operated. If you do not provide them with at least the first deal and advance the second deal within the first 90 days, there is a 90% probability they will go dark on you forever. Now, you've blown all this time, money, effort, resource, and opportunity cost recruiting them, and you screw it up because you're trying to manage 50 or 100 different partner relationships. Crazy. And there's something called Price's Law, which I'm very fond of. Price's Law is basically 80-20-ing the top and bottom 20%. It states that the square root of the number of people in your organization will produce 50% of your output and results. So if you have 10 salespeople, three will produce 50%. 
If you have 100 distributors, 10 will produce 50%. If you have 10,000 partners, 100 will produce 50%. So this is why I say focus on the special forces partner. 10 channel managers can easily and confidently manage 10 partner relationships. They cannot manage a 1,000. So think differently. Mark Twain said, your eyes won't see when your imagination is out of focus. And more often than not, your imagination is out of focus because of what you've done historically or what you see other people do. And too few leaders, channel chiefs, channel managers are asking the question, why do we do this? In the 1960s or 1970s, the British Army commissioned a time and motion study on firing of big artillery guns. And this captain was carrying around a stopwatch and a clipboard, and he was monitoring how these soldiers were behaving. So two of them carried this heavy shell. One of them sort of stood there groaning under the weight. The other one opened the back. They shoved it in, closed it, and then the one who stayed behind turned and got ready to prime the trigger. And the other one marched back 12 paces, turned around, put his right arm behind his back and held up his left arm. And he couldn't understand why they did this. And it took about 27 seconds. And he asked, why do you do it that way? And said, that's the way we were trained, sir. That's the way we do it in this man's army. Well, who trained you? The gunnery sergeant. So go to speak to the gunny. Gunny, why do you train your soldiers to fire the guns this way? That's the way I was trained, sir. That's the way we train them in this man's army, sir. So anyway, two weeks go by, and he's thinking to himself, this is a lost cause. I've got no idea why they're doing it. There must be a reason. And he spoke to this old codger who was a veteran from World War I, and he said, you were in the gunners. Why do you do that? Oh, that's easy. They're holding the horse. <laughs> <laughs> now, how often are you holding the horse in your channel, in your sales, in your operations, in your management, in your training? People don't ask themselves enough of the basic questions like, why do we do this? What value is this bringing to us? Is there not a better way? What if we stop doing it? You know, what does good look like? And so you see these people spend an inordinate amount of energy on unproductive behaviors because they're holding on to stuff that may have worked 60, 70 years ago, but is no longer relevant. One of my companies, CRO4, was working with a telemarketing company who was using the wrong ICP, the wrong ideal customer profile for the last four years. Is it any wonder they were struggling? So how would you go about recruiting the right people then who maybe perhaps are, as you'd say, instinctively collaborative? What kind of person are you looking for to fill these roles? Are you talking about partners or are you talking about channel managers and partner managers? Channel managers, partner managers, yeah. Okay, you need someone who is other focused. They derive their greatest satisfaction from helping others to succeed. They need to be organized. They have to be great planners. They really need to be people who are fixated on making other people successful. And when you think about it, a channel manager's role involves strategy and design, identifying and recruiting partners, enabling them, developing them, incentivizing them, driving their motivations, uncovering their motivations, co-selling, co-marketing, managing and reporting, and all of that making them successful. And my pal, Jay McBain, who's the lead analyst at Forrester, has produced this wonderful infographic 
with 90 different role functions. So the other thing you need is someone who is incredibly adaptable, someone with real scar tissue. Do not put your greenhorn salesperson into the channel and think they're going to succeed. In IT, the average age of a managed service provider founder is 57. In 2017, they were working 90-hour weeks. And at the beginning of the year, 30% of them wanted to exit their business. By the end of the year, 70% wanted to exit their business. So you put a 24-year-old who knows the square root of fuck all about fuck all in front of them, and they turn up and say, so David, what are you going to sell for us this year? He's going to leave with a boot print on his ass. <laughs> so you've got to make sure that your channel managers, they don't have to be great salespeople, but they do have to be exemplary coaches. They need to spend 70% of their time in the partner's business, helping them, strategizing, planning, training them, training their salespeople, clearing roadblocks, onboarding new salespeople, going to market together, prospecting together, helping them build their pipeline, helping them co-develop content and copy, helping them market their business, helping them train up their technical people, and regular accountability. So they need to be diplomatic, but also they need to be tough, not afraid of constructive conflict. They need to be fantastic listeners. They need to ask insightful questions. They have to be strategists. Because all of that could happen by 11 o'clock on Monday morning. So hyper-adaptable, but you don't want them spread so thin that they're being distracted, faffing around with administration. So as soon as you can, get a really good channel sales support person in to take care of the administration. Yeah. To reinforce that point, I think most of my successful partnerships, I'd spend a day a week with maybe five to ten of them. I'd spend a day a week or half a day a week with them in their offices as part of their team, just so getting to know what they're working like, understanding their culture. And by doing that, I became a natural part of their team. And they yeah. naturally thought of me as a go-to person when they needed to send us leads across, for example. You need to be their growth partner. You need to be somebody that they turn to whenever they have a challenging issue then what you have, they have to be picking up the phone to you first. What do you think of looking at, when identifying the partners, having an ecosystem? So we talked a little bit about, I think, growth through working with companies that sell to a similar audience and co-selling. So would you highly recommend that you're looking at whatever product you've got, look at the whole product ecosystem and then approaching those companies? Absolutely. Well, think about this. If you're in technology, the IT stack has become so complex and so sophisticated. At best, you are one moving part. So if we think about security, you could be one of 12 to 20 vendors that a bank is using to protect themselves from cyber attack. Now, if you can't play nicely with competitors, then you're in trouble because the bank doesn't care about your political objectives. What they care about is, can we stay out of jail? Can we stop our brand being damaged in public? Can we stop customers fleeing in their thousands? So what we need to recognize is that we need to be hyper-collaborative. In fact, I'm just in the throes of doing some research on strategic alliances. So these may be informal or formal, but I've put together one company that 
really understands how to unlock human decision making and can drive all of the marketing content, the written word, the spoken word, the visuals, choreograph all of that to drive purchase behavior. I put them with a company that has access to open banking data so that they can track and see actual customer spending behavior, how recently they spent, how much wallet share a particular retailer might have, for example, or consumer brand might have, and who's a lapsed customer, how much their competition spent. I've put them together with a live website company. So the website gently questions the customer. So if you go onto a big apparel platform, let's say an ASOS, type in short black cocktail dress, you'll get 2,000 options. With a live website, what it'll do, you type in sports watch, and it'll ask you, what type of athlete are you? Why are you exercising? Do you want elegant and small? Do you want chunky with big display? That gives you indication of gender. And then they present three or four really well-tailored options based on all of that other information. And by bringing all these together, you now offer a massive competitive advantage to the end customer. And you can co-sell because you all sell together. You can share the cost of marketing, the cost of sale. Now, that's smarter thinking. Absolutely. I love the personalization element of it. So narrowing down those options to understanding what you want to get to refining choices. Reminds me of the way I met my wife, actually. (laughs) It sounds like you were an option on a dating site. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Really insightful. Just looking at some audience question. We have like one how-to question and we kind of talked about it a little bit before, but the question is like, how do you ensure your channel sales program doesn't fail? If you can give like a few steps. First of all, make sure that you are really committed and your executive team is really committed to supporting the channel program because any sniff that you're not, your partners will flee for the hills. Secondly, make sure that you have a really good selection process and due diligence process to recruit the best partners for the job. Your job is to make them successful. First and foremost, your partner comes first, and next comes their customer. Because at the end of the day, if you're not making their customers successful, the partner's going to drop you like a hot brick. Then make sure you have a really good selection process, onboarding process, clearly defined agreements in terms of a prenup, Who keeps the kids in the event of a divorce? How do we escalate in the event that there's a problem? What resources will I give? What resources will you give? And make sure communication is always absolutely clear. It's really important that you create a sense of partner safety so that the partner never feels like you're going to abuse the relationship with their customers. You're never going to keep them out of the loop or try and cut them out. So you have to be reliable. You have to be responsive and you always have to work towards staying relevant both to the partner and to the end customer. You've got to be rigorously authentic. That means you have to admit when you mess up, when you don't know, or when they would be better served selling a competitor's product. Now, that takes real nerve. You need to be ready to enter into constructive conflict. How you build trust. The other piece is clarity. Ambiguity is the mother of all fuck ups, it's the mother of all. Mismatched expectations, disappointment. 
So always communicate with absolute clarity. So agree clearly what you both want and what you're both committing to. Make sure both sides understand who is going to be accountable, who's going to be responsible for doing what by when, and do not let any ambiguity creep in. And then document that so that both sides have a record and make sure there's always a clear time frame for any action because goals without times are wishes and the task will always expand to the time allotted to it. If you haven't allotted time, it just goes on for infinity. Work on building long-term partnerships. You're not trying to create a transaction. You're trying to create a partnership. And that means you help each other get better. Sometimes you end up in stand-up fights, but the objective is always to stay focused on helping both sides improve. Create strong and sustainable agreements that can weather the test of time, that will survive change and particularly survive adversity and be really collaborative. So you've got to listen deeply. You're always asking what next, what next, what next. So you stay ahead and you're helping the partner develop propositions for their customers that mean that they're constantly sustaining success over time, creating value, delivering outcomes. If you do those things well, then you'll be successful. Yeah. And good systems, good structure, regular flow of communication, accountability, and just be honest. Always tell the truth. It confounds your enemies and surprises your friends. Marcus is the author of Making Channel Sales Work. Recap, to make channel sales work, don't be a shit partner. Be partner-centric. Make your partner successful and make your partner's customer successful. Understand the customer journey and also what your partner's with their processes as well. And yeah, just figure out a way how to make them both super successful. Keep the amount of partners small. Think special forces versus giant army. Have executive support. Make sure like in your company and also on the other side that everybody has like real buy-in to make this happen and have a 120-day onboarding process and kind of really work closely with them. Pipeline reviews, go-to-market strategies together, co-marketing. Also something actually brought up, hang out in your partner's office, show up once pandemic is over or you're vaccinated. Really good review. A couple of other things that I would add. Channel sales is the hardest sales job there is, bar none. A channel manager is closer to a general manager than they are to a sales manager. And a channel chief is closer to being a chief executive than the walk in the park, easy job of a VP of sales. And it really does require somebody who understands that you have to manage without power. Your only currency are trust and influence. You don't decide who they hire. You don't decide on their compensation schemes. You don't decide what products they carry in their range. So you have to earn that trust. And it is hard earned and easily lost. So you've got to be rigorously authentic. You've got to be absolutely play with a straight bat no artifice, no hiding, withholding stuff. And like David said earlier, if there is something that the customer needs to know, tell them. Tell them, look, if you want the website in Australia, go with this company. They are very good. They're a competitor of ours, but I would rather you got the right outcome. And you've got to be a great planner. And the plan never survives contact with the enemy. So you've got to be adaptable. You've got to review the plan on a regular basis with your partners. And you've got to make sure that you hold each other to account. I cannot stress that enough. So there needs to be a regular cadence of accountability. Regular telephone calls, 
but then regular face-to-face -face where there is a clearer structure and an agenda. There are clear outcomes that you agreed the last time. There are clear satisfaction factors on both sides that each side commits to achieving that are within your control and their control. And then you hold each other to account and say, well, you said that you would help us do this. And on a scale of one to five, we're scoring you a three. Let me tell you why. And these are the reset factors. Whereas you said you'd do this and we're scoring you a 4.7. Great. Okay, what do we need to do to get to five? Anything less than a 4.7, I would consider that it's your responsibility to fix. Don't strive for perfection, just excellence. But every time you engage, you're trying to improve incrementally. Have regular telephone conversations with key stakeholders within the partner, with the salespeople, pre-salespeople, engineers, operations, their marketing team. Make sure marketing actually speaks to living, breathing human beings in the form of customers. Now, I know this is a heresy, and marketeers all over the world will be dying in their boots at the prospect of actually speaking to a human being. You cannot do your job unless you speak to customers. Being a data monkey is not marketing. It's just being a data monkey. Your job is to understand the customer, have their story, get them to tell their story about what it was like before they started working with you, what other options they considered, what reservations they had, why they chose you, what surprised them about working with you? What results have they had? How have you made them a hero? What have you done in order to advance them, advance their business? And then you now have a wealth of collateral that allows you to improve your prospecting. There's something that a lot of people face in sales, and the bottom 80% really struggle with this. And it's called discovery resistance. It's where a salesperson jumps into the discovery process before the customer or the prospect is comfortable opening up. Now, if you're smart, you will have gathered lots of these customer hero journey stories. And then you can say, David, may I tell you a story about a serial CEO of multiple technology companies that we worked with who was able to drive up the sales performance of their bottom 80% by 24% in the first four weeks of engaging with us. Now, I've now created pure curiosity and pure envy. And then I say, look, enough about what we do. Let's talk about you. Now, if I hit you with that story, given that you are a serial CEO of multiple technology companies, chances are you're going to say one of two things. One will be, well, hang on a second. Tell me a little bit more about that. And now I can discover why you want to and I can go into discovery, or you're going to say, I have a real problem with LT Plus, and we're having some problems with these sales guys. Tell me a little bit more about that. Now I'm into discovery. So you need to work with your partners to develop those war stories, to enable them to become more effective at prospecting. You don't want to do 33 dial attempts. You want to teach them how to use content. You want to teach them how to use video. You want to teach them how to use LinkedIn video messaging. Many of you may not know, but if you go onto the mobile app on LinkedIn and you tap on a profile and then you click the message icon at the bottom where the dialogue box is for you to type something in the message, there is a plus sign. If you click on the plus sign, 
you can leave a voicemail or a video message. And that bypasses the problem of gatekeepers, reception, not having a direct number or a mobile number. And you stand out with all the, the automated messages. Absolutely. And the other thing that you can do is you can teach them how to use those tools to be more creative and more memorable and increase engagement. The point being here that your job is to create engagement, to help your partners create engagement and make it fun for them. Because let's face it, dialing and smiling and dialing is a miserable experience, particularly where it takes two to three hours just to speak to another human being. Now, If you can speak to five or six an hour, and every 12 minutes you have a really strong conversation, oh, it's blissful. We've got one partner that got four and a half thousand percent ROI in the space of a month. We've got another sales outsourcing company that increased their targeting accuracy by 35 fold. And their connection rate on cold calls went from half a percent to 7.3% in two weeks. Now, if you can find ways to make yourself that valuable, that relevant, then all of a sudden you are elevated so far beyond the other partners. Because that's the other thing you have to bear in mind. Your partner probably has a dozen, 50, 100 different vendors that they work with. And if you are putting all that time in, whilst on average, Again, the research that Forrester have done on this is really depressing. The average channel manager lasts 2.1 years. So they spend six months trying to find the lavatory. Then they spend six months throwing their hands in the air, complaining about how crap everything that went before them is. Then six months implementing stuff no one wanted or asked for. And seven months getting their CV out and going on interview. Now, if you've got a dozen partners, what that means is, on average, once a month, a new channel manager to bed in. So they end up with vendor fatigue. So if you make it possible for your channel managers to stay four, five, six years in their job and love what they're doing and be highly engaged, the partners will look at you and think, oh, thank God it's a call from David. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, actually, Marcus, because there's nothing worse than frustrating as someone who's worked in branches for a number of years now than or having a good working relationship with a partner and the partner manager leaves or channel manager leaves, and then you have to start forming a new relationship with a new person that's come in and reinvent the wheel. So you're constantly reinventing the wheel and, and there's nothing more frustrating. And sometimes you lose that relationship. And if you're not doing a proper handover to the replacement, exit interviews, for God's sake, it's a really basic stuff. You need to be coaching your channel managers as well. And this is one of the things that really pisses me off. 94% of managers are not fit to do the job in sales management because their normal route to market, their normal route to the job is a tap on the shoulder and told, Chili, we've just fired your idiot manager. You're now the idiot manager. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) You do what was done for you or you do what you think is right, which means generally what you do is you beat your chest, pound the table, flog them with a carrot every now and again. And then your idea of coaching is you turn up and you say, let me show you how a real man does it. And then you do the job for them. I've taken on a CRO role for this fabulous piece of technology that allows the individual salesperson to coach themselves and become more self-aware in conjunction with a manager or a coach 
who can then give them a specific moment in the sale where they're screwing up because you coach what you see and then help them rehearse and practice and they'll do multiple takes and then they upload it and the manager in their own time can coach them on how to improve it even more. So then there's another round of repeated takes and increasing self-awareness. So then they get ownership of that little piece. Now, if you think about it, that is missing. 74% of managers think they are coaching their people. Only 17% of the salespeople being managed by those managers who were surveyed thinking they were coaching actually think they're receiving coaching. 74% of managers think they do it. 17% of their salespeople actually believe they're receiving coaching. It's crazy. And in the channel, it's even more important because if you're not helping those salespeople be successful, they just won't sell your stuff. Are there any books, tools, or resources that you recommend? There are three. Obviously, making channel sales work. If you buy the book now, my name's been taken off it for some unknown reason, but it has no bitterness there because I left my old organization. Building Successful Partner Channels by Hans-Peter Beck is a good book. And also, he wrote Going Global on a Shoestring. So this is the story of taking Narvision from some backwater in Denmark to being the biggest acquisition Microsoft had ever made by that point. And then a new book, which I wrote the forward for by Zach Selch, that's Z-A-C-H, Selch, S-E-L-C-H, called Global Sales. Now, Zach is a fascinating character. He's a bit like an imp. He's a good Jewish boy out of Chicago who, for the last 30 years, has been selling to Saudi Arabia. Good man. He's set up over a thousand channel partnerships in over 130 countries, and he's still doing business with a lot of the people he set up channel partnerships with 30 years ago. And this is his blueprint for how to grow international sales in really difficult markets. And his video channel is really well worth exploring as well. He's got this whole bit around the cultural differences to selling in France, Israel, Germany, KwaZulu, and everywhere else. Sounds interesting. I'll definitely be reading one of those, or a couple of those at least. I know that you're also keen to link with people because you're doing research at the moment around the strategic alliances. Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing some research for a number of reasons, but I want to speak to people who've set up successful strategic alliances and also where you've screwed up because I'm trying to put together a how-to and create a series of models that allow you to understand how to rapidly develop highly effective strategic alliances. The mathematics of strategic alliances is very different. In traditional direct sales, one-on-one -on -one equals two. In strategic alliances, crass as this may sound, one-on-one -on -one equals 11. It's almost impossible not to 10x your business if you set up a really effective strategic alliance. And Zach, in many of the countries that he worked in, would drive year-on-year 1,000% growth. The friend of mine that I told you about who built his business with 14 partners to 3 billion, they were achieving a quadruple-digit growth in-country. Now, imagine being able to grow at that scale without the wheels coming off, because that's the really clever bit. Scaling is not rapid growth. Scaling is rapid growth without any additional work to the founder or the vendor organization. 
if you do it through partners, they've already got the infrastructure. They've got a sales team. They've got a marketing team. They've got a technical team. They've got engineers. They've got management. They've got finance. So you can grow exponentially. And so I'm doing my research on that. So if you've been successful at creating alliances, strategic alliances, partners, channel programs, then I'd love to talk to you. You can email me, marcus at laughs-last.com. That's M-A-R-C-U-S at L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen L-A-S-T.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. And I go on Twitter as the underscore inquisitor because I ask shitty and horrible questions. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, Marcus. Thank you very much. Always love chatting with you. Likewise. Thank you for dropping so much knowledge. I hope we get to meet up in person at some point. Yeah, definitely. And it'd be great to get together. And I'd love to talk about potential collaboration and alliances because we do operate in a similar market. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Is your e-commerce growing so fast that you can't keep up with supporting your customers in real time? Serve them better in any time zone and language. They will thank you with higher conversion rates and repeat purchases. We build and manage your own dedicated customer experience team of live chat and support agents. Get started today. Visit ltvplus.com. That's ltvplus.com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.